Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also archived for free at iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. And actually, I say that every single show. It may not be true that they're all archived in iTunes. Uh, some number of them are in iTunes, like the last hundred or something. But I'm not sure if all of the episodes since number one are there. So if you want to hear episodes from the very beginning of the show, back in the uh, 1940s and 50s, then just head over to thejazzsession.com, and you can hear my interviews with Tommy Dorsey and, and uh, Glenn Miller and Charlie Parker and all those great guys from, uh, from back in the day. Today's show is of a little more modern vintage. It features guitarist Eric Hofbauer. He's got a new album out, uh, I think part of a trilogy. The first one was American Vanity. This new one is American Fear. And it begins with one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite bands. My guest is guitarist and composer and uh, 
record label runner Eric Hoffbauer, and he's got uh, a bunch of new projects that he's either leading or involved with that are out, um, including American Fear, a solo guitar album on his own Creative Nation Music. And it's my pleasure to welcome Eric to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. I want to start right out asking about um, American Fear and kind of the... Uh, maybe the attitude that underlies it. I, in a couple reviews that I that I read, in one place somebody referred to some of the music that you covered as having not been very good in its original state, you know, just like disposable pop music, and then better when it was covered by you. Um, and I, so I think of like the Tears for Fears example because I'm actually I'm a huge Tears for Fears fan, and I love a lot of kind of 80s and early 90s Euro pop, and um, which yeah. I actually quite like for its own purposes. Um, and so I just wondered kind of what. You know, how did you choose the tunes that come from far outside the the normal repertoire? Yeah, but you know that was uh, I found those those comments um, interesting myself because all of the all the songs that I picked, uh, whether they were uh, jazz covers or non jazz covers, were because the songs meant a lot to me personally, uh, and that I enjoyed them and either grew up with them or had some type of connection with them. Um, so they weren't, you know, it wasn't, uh, my goal was not to set out to, to polish them up, to, you know, <laughs> to let the world know of, you know, of their, uh, let the world know of, you know, their secrets, hidden melodic, uh, beauty. Um, I already found the tunes very interesting and enjoyed them. So I just wanted to put my own spin on them and I felt that they fit the, the narrative specifically of the, of the theme of the album. And, you know, one of my, goals with doing a cover, whether it's uh, a jazz composition or Tears for Fears or Van Halen, it doesn't matter, um, is to, to do my own take on it, especially in the solo guitar setting, because it's obviously you're sacrificing so much instrumentationally, so you really have to deconstruct it to you know find a new interpretation and some new life to it. And so that's all I was doing, but yeah, it wasn't from a, uh, from a, from a negative angle at all, it was totally from a positive um, appreciation and kind of love and nostalgia even for some of this music. Yeah, I, I kind of suspected that that was the case, but just wanted to give you a chance to say that. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, the narrative element, and this uh, American Fear is um, the, the second album uh, following American Vanity of, of solo guitar, and that seems to have you know some very overt programmatic elements to it. Can you talk a little bit about the narrative element uh, of this record? You know, I'm, I'm doing... A, a trilogy, actually, of American something, and the first was American Vanity, and exploring the you know that explored the the idea of the, or the manifestation of vanity in American culture, and specifically through my medium of music, um, and a lot of it was self-reflective, um, and a lot of it was uh, you know thinking of my own vanity as a musician and a performer, and you know just as a person, we all have you know, certain, you know, experiences dealing with our own egos. Um, so I thought it was an interesting and compelling um, component of, of American culture. And uh, so the follow-up was, you know, was fear. I thought, you know, throughout uh, American history, whether it's politics, art, culture, just our own history as a, as a people, you know, fear is at, at the core, at the core of really whether we admit it or not, um, you know, what makes America, America, you could argue, I mean, fear is what drives, whether you're overcoming your fear, tackling it, or, uh, you know, relinquishing yourself to it. 
um, it's a big part of uh, self-definition. And so, again, you know, fear manifests itself uh, in 20th and 21st century American culture all the time, in politics and in uh, music and in film. So uh, it was, you know, a, a field that was wide open for uh, for discovery and artistic exploration because there was a lot of um, avenues I could explore. Again, being self-reflective uh, at times and commenting on fear in myself as a as an artist trying to make his way in the world as a musician trying to survive um, as a child growing up from a you know uh, from a kid to an adolescent to a young man to a man. Uh, so you know there was lots of stuff I could pull from. So it, it was. Uh, a uh, very fertile uh, creative field. Regular listeners to to this show, both of them, will have heard me ask this question before um, about uh, how much you expect of an audience in terms of either understanding or accepting the kind of programmatic or narrative side of the music when they you know when they just put this record in the CD player or when they come see you. Uh, how much is that of that is necessary for them? Um, very uh, little. Um... Real, you know, it's not. You know, I'm not gonna, uh, you know, say that you have to prepare. You know, um, prepare for one of my concerts or something like that, um, or that you need to have a certain understanding of music history or American culture or the guitar or you know anything for that matter. In a live performance, I I tend to um, buck the trend of of most. Uh, of a lot, not most, I can't say most, but a lot of jazz musicians that I see, um, which choose not to describe what they're playing. Um, and if it's an original composition or if it's a pretty severe deconstruction, I like to explain. I've actually had a lot of success, um, both here and abroad with that, with that approach. I've, you know, toured, uh, I haven't toured yet with American Fear and the solo tour that's coming up in September, but the last time when I uh, toured for American Vanity, all my little stories that introduced the various cover tunes and stuff. I had people after at the end of every concert say, "Oh, thank you so much! I could really connect with the music." So, 
the narrative is important live, and I think that helps him. So I kind of help him um, when it comes to the to the CD itself. Um, I'm hoping that they just can take what it from uh, you know, or take from it what they will. Whether it be like uh, those who thought that uh, my versions of you know everybody wants to rule the world and smells like Teen Spirit were better than the originals. That's great. They took from that. That wasn't my approach, but I'm not trying to like ham-handedly you know beat bludgeon someone over the head with you know this is my story. This is my narrative. Uh, fear is universal enough as far as um, um, if you think of in the classic. Kind of, uh, if you think of like classic mythology and one of these things to overcome, it's a very universal topic. And so that's what I was hoping that anybody who listens to the music can take from it what they will, whether it's just having fun with listening to a jazz, blues, bebop version of Van Halen, or if they want to dig deeper, they can. Well, I love that idea of really uh, explaining and interacting with the audience. I, I think it was uh, the poet William Carlos Williams who said, you should never explain a poem, but it always helps. And I, <laughs> I really like that because I, I really detest the kind of jazz priesthood and the you know the idea that there's there's just stuff you can never understand and we're going to keep it that way. And this, right. this sounds like very counter to that and, and very much realizing the fact that there are people in the room with you who, who yeah. came there to see you play. Yeah, that is that is true, and and I yeah I don't have to give every single detail, and I don't have to tell them my deepest darkest secrets. Um, but it, just explaining a little bit, a little bit of backstory can help them connect to the music in their own way as the audience. And I like I always tell the audience, especially in a solo situation, that the concert is really a, a duo between myself and them, and I can, and it's not you know it's not worth it if they're not in the loop as well. I want to make uh, clear to listeners uh, who haven't yet uh, checked out American Fear that uh, although we've talked some about the tunes that you cover, there are a lot of original compositions as well. And I just wanted to ask, um, how do you how do you approach writing for the solo guitar? I mean, what do you what do you kind of see as the responsibilities you have when you're sitting down to write a piece, given that you're the only person who's who's going to perform it? Um, well, this this particular project, uh, the composition process uh, was very closely linked to uh, the improvisation process, and I would, 
at, at the most have a premeditated uh, set of ideas, usually uh, concerning uh, timbre, articulation, um, maybe density versus space. Um, and then from there, I would set out to do, I would just uh, press record and improvise a little bit. And, if, and usually focusing on like one idea, try to, whatever that idea might be. Maybe it's a certain, I want a certain tempo, and I'm using something with uh, a harmonic on the E string, and some kind of double stop thing on the uh, on the low E string, and then a double stop thing on the uh, top two strings, and I have to you know create a create a, a melodic idea out of that and work with that. So I might you know so that first take is pretty rough around the edges, but there might be something in there that I can develop. And so all of these originals, the compositional process was starting out as that kind of conceptually focused improvisation, and then I would kind of uh, hone in on what was working, what wasn't working. Um, discard, you know, uh, the stuff that wasn't holding together, and maybe over a period of anywhere, depending on the song and how long they are, some of them are short, uh, because they are only focusing on one sound idea. Um, they might uh, take anywhere from 10 minutes to half hour to kind of gel together. I might, like, rehearse it, practice it, jot down an idea, or just memorize it, and then record it over a series of takes, maybe three, four takes, I'd have the final product, the final composition. Well, that's really interesting. And is that, um, was that a, a compositional method that you kind of intentionally tried on this record, or is that how you've approached it? Or is, that how you, is that how you did American Vanity, for example, or how, how did that work? No, that, that was something that I just tried for this, for this project. Um, you know, I've been working a lot on, um, just in my solo guitar practice, um, trying to improvise more compositionally and utilizing form and seeing if I could um, remember. Uh, and it kind of stemmed from doing a lot of concerts um, post-American Vanity. Um, I would improvise. I wanted to do new pieces, so I'd try to improvise compositions in the concerts and try to have like a two or three or sometimes four section improvisation and try to remember those little melodies and try to remember those sections and the form and if there was harmony or if there were, uh, you know, a, a certain bar structure, I try to remember that stuff. So it kind of stemmed from, from that kind of developing this spontaneous compositional process. But normally if I'm composing for um, Garrison and I or the Infrared Band, my other, you know, my quartet project, it's more conventional composition. I'm sitting down and working with, uh, you know, a piece of paper or, well, conventional for me sometimes ranges from walking down the street, humming things to singing in the shower to, you know, writing things that I heard when I dream. So, whatever. But um, this, this American fear process was definitely something new that I wanted to experiment with. Thank you. 
To, uh, a few guitarists in the last several months, and certainly um, this next question isn't specific to guitar players, but it's guitarists who've mentioned it, who've talked about needing to, to get away from the guitar sometimes to write, to get out of the box that their fingers kind of put them in, the, the kind of finger memory and the patterns that you learn, uh, the kind of idiomatic compositional box that, that is created by that. Do you find, it sounds like if you're walking down the street humming, you're probably not doing it well. <laughs> Holding a guitar, yeah. you find that's true too? Do I find that to be true? Yes. I tried to... That was something impressed upon me early on in my uh, study and exploration of composition was to try to um, compose as much as possible away from the instrument, especially the primary instrument, and then um, use that instrument to try to, you know, uh, edit or to kind of um, reinforce something that you that you heard uh, to make sure that you're actually hearing that pitch or that chord or that sound or, you know, my singing voice isn't fantastic. So if I'm singing something and I record it into my cell phone because I'm not near my guitar, then I'll go back home and transcribe it on my guitar and then write it down. Um, so the guitar is, is, is part of the process, but it's not a part of the creative process because I agree that was always my big worry was if I was going to be sitting on the guitar that um, it's just inevitable that, uh, or the piano or the saxophone, if you compose on your main instrument, you're going to, I think, compose or highlight um, idiomat- idiomatic um, elements that are hard to escape when you're actually playing the instrument. I want to shift gears a little bit now. There's uh, there's just so much great and creative and uh, exciting music on Creative Nation Music, and I, I thought before we delve into some of those other records that are out there. Could you just tell folks a little bit about uh, Creative Nation Music, uh, how it got its start, and, and where you see it going? It started um, in 2003 uh, in earnest um, as a... First, it just started out as a uh, idea I had to uh, produce local concerts and bring in as many local uh, Boston and regional New England you know, jazz artists as I could, and I was renting spaces and putting on shows. And, you know, my goal was to eventually, you know, release albums. And uh, as the years went by, um, and using myself as as the guinea pig, I guess, because I wanted to put out music, um, started uh, started Creative Nation Music as more of less of a concert promotional thing and a producing thing and more of a uh, label, and through a lot of what I learned through trial and error, again, with some of my earlier releases, uh, American Vanity being one of them, I was able to uh, round up a brick-and-mortar distributor, which is, I mean, now in, in 2010, is something that's old school and almost a dinosaur. But um, <laughs> like you said, you, for your two listeners, the, the, uh, the three people who actually go to record stores can you know, actually find my <laughs> record in various stores. Um, but also <laughs> was able to get a, a digital distributor, which has been great. Um, and I picked up a lot of things along the way as far as, you know, uh, a good designer that's kind of in my uh, corral of, of creative people working with me, a good, uh, you know, uh, liner note writer and, you know, good pu- 
publicist and got the whole kind of infrastructure together and then really started uh, to go out to the Boston jazz community and say, okay, I have something here. We can work as a collective. Um, it's still do-it-yourself, um, but I actually have a, an infrastructure that we can try to get this music out there and compete on a global scale um, in, this, in this indie jazz market. And so I was able to uh, bring in friends and artists um, like Garrison Fuel, um, like uh, Ayn and Sato, uh, like the Quartet of Happiness, and you know other people. Now it's you know expanding, and I'm trying to put out as my budget and time will allow at least five albums a year, and really only one, maybe two, depending on the year. Of them are only on my work. Um, a lot of them are other people's work, which is really great. That are starting to actually. The idea that I had so many years ago is actually starting to sink in and work as a, that this label is focused on um, really documenting the, the Boston jazz creative music scene. I definitely uh, I want to have some of the the other artists on themselves who are on Creative Nation. So I'm gonna mostly ask you about the albums on which you actually appear. Um, and one of them, well, maybe I'll ask you first about the uh, uh, the Infrared Band and also uh, the Blueprint Project, um, both of which I just really really love and, and definitely encourage people to check out. Can you uh, can you mention the Infrared Band and, and also the Blueprint Projects? Sure. Um, the Infrared Band is my uh, most recent uh, working quartet um, uh, that I write I write all the music for and arrange and it's uh, Kelly Roberge on saxophone uh, recent new addition to the bass uh, Sean Farias excellent local bass player and uh, Miki Matsuki on the drums um, and she's been on the Boston scene for a while and uh, we've worked together on and off for years um, and so now we've finally working together in this band, which is great. And um, first album, Misunderstanding, kind of the theme of that album was uh, exploring uh, modern modern myth and um, different the, the storytelling aspect of, of music. Um, I'm really fascinated with the parallels between uh, martial arts 
um, kung fu films and improvisation, and um, so I wrote a bunch of pieces that explore that theme. So that uh, that's a part of uh, the misunderstanding. We just recorded a new album uh, that's hopefully will be coming out in January or February, uh, 2011. Again, a whole new slew of um, compositions that I wrote in the last year and a half, um, and that album is called Level. Um, and uh, exploring some different uh, compositional approaches, uh, having a lot to do with uh, uh, palindromic structures. Um, the title of the album is itself a palindrome. Um, the Blueprint Project is an older band. We've been together since uh, we met uh, years ago in the late 90s in graduate school. Uh, the core members, uh, Tyson Rogers on piano, Garrett Sims uh, on the saxophone, and myself, and we had a couple of early albums that uh, um, have kind of vanished from this earth. Um, <laughs> but um, hopefully we'll return someday. And uh, really, we uh, organized... The, the mission of that band, the Blueprint Project, was to... Because at the time, we were much younger, in like 2000, 2001. Uh, the idea was to um, meet up with older, um, more experienced, uh, daring jazz musicians, basically our heroes, uh, any of our heroes that were willing to meet us, talk with us, and potentially if we could talk them into uh, working with us and recording with us. And uh, we were blessed to uh, work with first Susan McBee and Matt Wilson on our first self-titled album, Blueprint Project. Uh, we all share the compositional duties, the three core members. And then um, the last album we did, we were able to just work with the quartet and added Han Benick. I think that was our most uh, successful. Again, same method, you know, working with one of our heroes. He, he was somebody I always wanted to work with. I'm a big Eric Dolphy fan, and Last Date, the album that he was on, uh, is one of my favorites. So that was a dream come true to work with him. We were able to perform with him uh, several times in the, in the following years, 2005, 6, 7. So um, that project is, is going on. The, uh, you know, it's hard to keep that band together. That's why I formed the Infrared Band a few years ago, because uh, Tyson lives now in Nashville. Uh, Jared's still in town, but uh, it's hard to get together. We have plans for another meeting of the minds, uh, hopefully sometime next year. But, um, yeah, those are those two bands. That's great. And the um, the most recent Blueprint Project album that Eric was just mentioning is called People I Like, and uh, I highly encourage folks to find that. And there will be links to the Creative Nation Music site in the show notes for this show at thejazzsession.com, and you should go there and buy all the records. Um, another I wanted to ask you about was uh, we've mentioned uh, guitarist uh, Garrison Fuel several times, and you and he uh, have a duo album together called The Lady of Khartoum. And one of the things I was most interested about was um, – the, this idea of working together with with just two guitars, and it's really not just two guitars because there are other uh, instrumental elements in there, but only two performers. But the idea of two guitars kind of navigating a musical landscape together, and what that uh, what that was like in this case. Well, in this case, it was uh, really easy. Um, Garrison and I have been good friends for uh, years and years. We met actually because he had heard American Vanity. Uh, a mutual friend, Charlie Colhase, a great uh, saxophone player here in town in Boston, uh, played in American Vanity. I'm in Charlie Colhase's band. And um, so he went to a show because he wanted to meet me because uh, he liked it. And uh, we hit it off and realized we lived right around the corner from one another. So we started uh, frequenting a local bar uh, called Redbones. 
and we, we refer to it now as the office, because there we would go and discuss music and have a couple <laughs> beers and whatever, and chat about things. And that just that friendship bloomed, and we just we started making music together and practicing, and it was just kind of a, a logical extension of our friendship to go into the studio uh, to put together this album, and it was so easy and really carefree. Um, you know, there, there was no pressure. Um, we didn't really talk about things like, oh, we got to do this and make sure we're doing this. We just kind of played. Uh, there was a bunch of percussion there we worked with. Um, in a way, it's funny, the narrative of the album, this exploration uh, and this connection between the blues and West African influences and even uh, Middle Eastern influences really didn't dawn on us until afterwards when we listened to all the playbacks and said, oh, wow, listen to what we've kind of done. Um, we just kind of went in there um, just to make some music and experiment with different sound combinations and try to play um, the guitars in, in, the, in a way that was not the standard guitar duet um, you know, Herb Ellis, Joe Pass type of thing and try to see if we can really stretch the, the sound possibilities. This uh, this interview will air in in mid to late August, and with that in mind, uh, you mentioned, for example, a September solo tour. Can you talk about that and other things that might be coming up for you that people can check out? Depending on uh, where they are, if they're in the New York area, um, the Infrared Band, and, and I'm going to do some solo stuff as well. We're going to be playing at at Autos Shrunken Hedge on. Um, September uh, 10th, uh, September 11th, we'll be in Syracuse, New York, um, playing at a place called the uh, Jazz Underground. Um, then that went following Wednesday the 15th, I'll be back in Boston at Johnny D's in Somerville, again doing a solo set and an infrared band set. And there's, I'm looking, haven't confirmed, there's three other dates in the mix. Uh, they haven't quite come together yet, but hopefully they will be. So it's going to be about a, a one-week um, jaunt around the Northeast. And will those dates uh, eventually be on the Creative Nation site? Absolutely, yeah. They will all be definitely posted um, under the events menu. 
Great. And again, uh, those links will be in the show notes of this show. My guest is guitarist Eric Hoffbauer. He uh, is involved in a number of new projects um, on his Creative Nation music label, uh, including American Fear, an album of solo guitar uh, that I highly recommend. And uh, Eric, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and uh, especially to talk to someone with you know such a, a distinct vision that they're making making come true. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to do it, and I hope you'll come back and tell us more in the future. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking with you. That was guitarist Eric Hoffbauer from his new solo guitar album, American Fear. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. You will find, if you go to AllAboutJazz.com, or in fact, if you go to TheJazzSession.com, at either site, you'll find a little box with the current episode of The Jazz Session in it. And if you were to click on that box, I think it says more podcasts, it would take you to a page at All About Jazz. And on that, you would see, like, get the code or something like that. 
if I were a less lazy host, I would have looked before I recorded this. Uh, and anyway, you just get that code and you can put that widget on your own website. And if you do that, let me know because I will then send people to your website via my newsletter, which goes out to many, many listeners of the jazz session, both uh, on Facebook and via email. And I Twitter it and all that other stuff. All the things the cool kids do, and I also do. I also wanted to mention that uh, the Jazz Session could really use some sponsors. Uh, so if you would like to help keep the Jazz Session on the air, so to speak, uh, and you or your company or you know someone whose company you think could benefit from exposure to the kind of audience that the uh, Jazz Session attracts, which is uh, good-looking, uh, brilliant, very sophisticated and athletic. If you think that uh, a good-looking, brilliant, sophisticated, athletic audience would benefit your product or service, uh, feel free to uh, contact me. You'll find the ways to do that on the contact page at thejazzsession.com. Sponsors welcome, particularly from uh, the defense and tobacco industries. Those are the two main areas uh, that I'm looking for. So if, uh, if those folks... I think the Jazz Session, sponsored by Philip Morris and, and Raytheon, would be a real hit, don't you? In the meantime, very, very soon now, uh, in about a week and change, my friends in the Respect Sextet are going to be launching their brand new record, uh, A Farcical Built for Six, and they're doing that with a show at LPR in New York City. You should go to respectsextet.com, and you should uh, check out the details of that show, and you should go see it, because they are fantastic, and they're incredible live uh, and they, of course, recorded the theme music for this program. Dave Rabel designed the show's logo. Thanks, Dave. And thank you very much for listening. If you like what you heard, you can donate a little bit. There's a there's a button on the jazzsession.com that says Donate It Secure. You can do it uh, via PayPal, and I would certainly love to have your money. I mean, I'm sure you would, too. So... Until next time, please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time, would you, for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye.